On October of 2013, 311 Eritrean and Somali refugees were drowned off of the coast of the Italian island of Lampedusa. The uh, islanders were able to save 155 other people. When their boat washed ashore, uh, one of the town's craftsmen wanted to do something, and so he made crosses out of the driftwood of the wrecked boat. One of those crosses is now in the British Museum with this note. Mr. Tuccio, the island's carpenter, was moved by their plight, but felt frustrated that he could not make a difference to their situation. The best he could do was to use his skills as a carpenter to fashion each of them a cross from the wreckage of the boat as a reflection on their salvation from the sea and hope for the future. Whatever you believe, the cross is a pivotal moment in history, and even the British Museum recognizes it as a symbol of hope. This is the beginning of Holy Week, where we reflect on the final events of Jesus's uh, life. And so it's sort of appropriate that we take a look at the cross. So we're going to look at a long passage out of Mark chapter 15 today, beginning at verse 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by in his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see which each one would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, Come down from the cross and save yourselves. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What is going on with the cross? Why did all of this happen? Well, let's make a couple of points. The first is, from a Christian worldview perspective, everything is broken. So this starts way back in the Garden of Eden when sin first enters and people decide not to follow God but to follow their own devices. So everything gets broken and we inherit all of that and we make bad choices with that too. But God's intentions are good because immediately after we break everything, God decides to put it back together again. God makes a commitment to make it right. And so in our worldview, even though everything is broken, we know that standing behind the scenes is a good God who loves us, who's in the process of making everything right. And that's one of the most important things that we have to know. God isn't mad. God is motivated by love. 
and that will help us understand everything that happens. So we think that everything is broken. We know that evil runs rampant because we see people sin against each other and against God. And we recognize that there's a problem, but why doesn't God just go, it's okay, everything is forgiven? I mean, why all the fuss about a cross? Why all the fuss about atonement? Why can't God go, eh, it's okay? And the reason is because it doesn't work like that. And we all understand it. There is a cost to sin. There is a cost to bad behavior. There's a cost to hurting other people. I told you last week that I've been watching this series of videos on YouTube about people just in real life situations talking about how rough their life has been and how they're trying to put their lives back together. And as I watched these different videos, I realized each person bears the scars in their lives of the choices that they made or that other people did to them. They can't just get over it. Evil has been done to them and forgetting it isn't the answer. Now, we might be tempted to cut ourselves more slack, but imagine if someone crashed through your fence with their car and did several thousand dollars worth of damage to your property and they said, sorry dude, and drove off. You wouldn't go, no problem, have a nice day you'd be angry, and rightly so. You'd be like, who's gonna pay for the fence? We recognize that bad things come with a cost to them. And even though we might wanna excuse ourselves, we generally don't wanna excuse other people. And then we ask the same questions that people have been asking for millennia. Why do good things happen to bad people? Why are so many things unfair? We just have this deep sense of what right should be like, and we recognize that things aren't right. Now, I'm not sure that there's a demon lurking behind every bush or behind every bad thing. I think people do a pretty good job of doing bad things without a whole lot of outside influence, but I know evil exists. I see it all the time, and I recognize that something has to be done about it. Something has to be done with the evil and the brokenness and the sin. You can't just ignore it. You can't just hope that it will go away because it won't. It has to be dealt with. It has to be resolved. It has to be made right. The power that evil has over individuals and nations and the world has to be broken. And that's where God's plan comes in. So God's plan is the beginning of our worldview. Because we believe that immediately after we develop this problem of making bad choices or of sin, that God starts the plan to get things back the way they were. So the story is told in Genesis chapter 3, and that's where it begins, of what's known as the fall. You know, they eat the apple, and both of them, their eyes are open, and sin kind of enters into the world. But what happens immediately is not the anger of God, it's God's love is shown to them and by extension to us because he puts this plan into place to make everything right again and get us back to that point that we were in the garden before sin and bad behavior entered. So then if we fast forward to Genesis chapter 12, it begins to be fleshed out a little bit where God picks one person, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you an enormous family and have a covenant with you. And then the covenant will be that I will be your God and you will be my people. And through you, 
all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Now, now how is that supposed to happen? Well, it's supposed to happen that they're supposed to have this intimate relationship with God and their lives are supposed to be changed. They're supposed to live loving God and loving other people. And that's supposed to be a demonstration for other people about how life can be. And essentially, Israel is supposed to be like a kingdom of priests. And as Protestants, the idea of a priest is a little bit lost on us. But the function of a priest is to bridge the gap. So a priest bridges the gap between God and people and helps bring the two of them together. And so Israel was supposed to serve as an example to the nations around them that there is this good God who's trying to love them and restore them. But the problem was that Israel wasn't all that good at that. Instead of being a blessing to others, they saw themselves as being blessed above others. And that's different. And they were also unable to keep their side of the bargain. They were supposed to be God's people, but they kept liking other things better. Whether it was the free and easy life promised by other gods or the desire to have a big army like all the other countries, they're constantly choosing their, uh, their own way. And the entire Old Testament, particularly the prophets, is filled with this story of this faithful, loving God who keeps calling people back to himself and his people just continuing to go do something else. They reject God over and over again. And then in the books of Elijah and Daniel in particular, we see this idea develop that out of the whole nation of Israel, there will come one perfect Israelite. And instead of the nation functioning as a priest for the nations, this one person will do that. They will be one person who will represent the many. And it's interesting that the high priest during Jesus' time picks up on this idea. In, in John 11, Caiaphas says, this is during the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, you do not realize that it's better for you that one, die, one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. And that's exactly what's happening as God's plan moves from an entire nation down to one person. And so ultimately, it all focuses on Jesus on the cross. Now, if you look at Jesus's life and his death, throughout his entire life, he's constantly pointing to a God who loves us. Jesus doesn't just compile a bunch of teaching. Jesus doesn't give us 12 steps to a more fulfilling life or five steps to keep your money safe during a recession. All of Jesus' teaching points to something. And the thing that it points to is that the kingdom of God is coming and it's going to change everything. And that the kingdom of God means that God is in the process of fixing things, of recreating things, of making all things new, taking the broken and restoring them. And if, if you look at our lives and the way that things are in the world, the ultimate sign that things are broken is death. When we, we feel this every time we go to the, the graveside of our grandparents or some other tragic thing, there's just something about death that we recognize is wrong. And I think that's because it's the ultimate sign that things are broken because we die and we weren't ever supposed to experience something like that. And so Jesus lives this life of showing us what God is like and then he comes to 
this place where ultimately God is going to fix everything. And Jesus talks about how sin and death will be taken care of and that all focuses down to what he's going to do on the cross. Because all evil ultimately leads to death. But Jesus on the cross will change the fact that death has the last word. Because if you can defeat death, it's all changed. And that's what Paul gets at when, way after the crucifixion, in 2 Corinthians 15, he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? So in this passage that we're looking at today, uh, in verse 26, it says that the written notice of the charge against Jesus read, The King of the Jews. And that's a little unintentionally ironic, but also even prophetic. Because what the authorities are saying is, here's your king. King is a representative of the people. One man representing everyone. And the king of the Jews is supposed to die on the cross, but what he's doing is representing all of us and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that gives us a clue to what actually happens on the cross. So why the cross in particular? Well, I think for several reasons. One is it's contextual, but another is it's pretty much the worst that could be done. And the other thing that the cross demonstrates is just how far God will go to accomplish his plan of loving us and bringing us back to him. In verse 31, it says, In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. So I think there's two things that are going on here. They say he saved others, but he couldn't save himself. What's really happening is he saved others and he can save himself. But instead, he willingly gives his life to save the others. And that's an important point. No one takes Jesus' life from him. He willingly gives it. And then the second point is that Jesus is turning the power structure on its head. Let this Messiah come down from the cross. Everybody wants to back a winner. Jesus hanging on the cross doesn't look like Jesus is winning. Quite the opposite. So they're laughing at this king of the Jews because he can't save himself, at least by their definition. Because they live in a world where might makes right where power needs to be flexed, where money talks, and where victories are won by military forces. Nothing about the cross looks victorious or powerful, except that instead of clinging to power, Jesus finds power in letting it go. Jesus shows strength in weakness. Jesus instead demonstrates the power of love and selflessness. So the cross, on the one hand, represents the worst that can be done by evil, and on the other hand, the best that can be done by good. You see, at the point of the cross, all of the forces of evil are focused on Jesus. As Jesus walks closer and closer to the cross, the gospel writers keep talking about him engaging with demon-possessed people. And quite frequently, either Jesus will ask them, do you know who I am? Or they'll just volunteer the information. You are the Holy One of God. And so the gospel writers are intentionally setting up this conflict between the forces of good and the forces of evil, between Jesus and all of the forces of evil. 
So it comes to the head on this particular day and evil shows up in force. Jesus has a circus instead of a trial. He comes up on trumped up charges. He has a judge who knows that Jesus is innocent, but he gets swayed by political pressures. He has people who just want a political spectacle to get their minds off of their everyday lives. Jesus, after the kangaroo court is over, is flayed nearly to death by a merciless beating. He's nailed to the cross. And we've heard this so many times that the force of it is blunted. He is nailed to a cross. And then he's left there to hang until he suffers ultimately a heart attack because of severely overtaxed bodily systems. While he hangs there, he's jeered at by the crowds, he's abandoned by his friends, and you just have this picture of evil swirling about. And evil does the worst that it can, and then it wins, because Jesus died. At least it thought it did. But because the perfect man was also God, who gave his life willingly, that breaks the power of evil. And then God raises him to life on the third day. I love this uh, quote that I heard. I wish I could remember where it came from. But it says, resurrection is the sign that the cross is working. I love that. The power of sin and death is broken. A new creation is coming into being. How and why this happens is also worth spending a moment on. Because I think when we think about the cross, We've got some great songs that fit into this, and we're just used to thinking about the wrath of God. But I think that's overplayed, and it comes out in our views of the, of the crucifixion. We don't find child sacrifice admirable. And yet, as I read secular sources about the crucifixion, that's how a lot of people view the crucifixion. That the crucifixion is an example of a vengeful deity demanding that his son be killed to fulfill his sense of honor or right and wrong. It's like this cosmic demonstration of child abuse. It's this petulant deity who gets offended and then somebody has to make him happy again. But if you read the scriptures carefully, that's not what's happening. It's the love of God that results in the crucifixion, not the wrath of God. God is wrathful against sin. God hates sin. God is not wrathful against us. And that's an important distinction. This great act of love of Jesus dying on the cross is to remove sin from us, not to punish us and our representatives. In John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his son. It doesn't say God so hated the world that he killed his only son. All four gospel writers portray the story of Jesus' crucifixion in terms of someone embodying the love of God himself, acting as the personal expression of that love all the way to death. I love what N.T. Wright says, at the center of the whole picture, we do not find a wrathful God bent on killing someone demanding blood. Instead, we find the image of the covenant-keeping God who takes the full force of sin onto himself. So I think we need to be careful about thinking only of the wrath and the anger of God when the crucifixion is really about the love of God. But, you say, what about Jesus sensing being abandoned from his Father? Well, in verse 34, it says, At three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And quite frequently, Jesus quotes the, the Old Testament, and he only quotes a portion of it. And the reason is because he knows that everybody else knows the rest of the portion of it. Another a great example of this is when Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. And then everybody would hear the rest of it, which means you need to take care of them. So Jesus quotes Psalm 22 here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all kinds of theology develops out of that. And even good songs about how his father, the father turns his face away. But let me read you a little bit of the rest of Psalm 22, which would not have been lost on the people who listened. Verse 1 starts out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? But if you drop down to the end, uh, verse 24, this is how the psalm ends. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. That's the end of Psalm 22. And that's what Jesus is asking the people to remember. Not why have you forsaken me, God, but he has done it. And one of the other uh, uh, accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, the last words out of Jesus' mouth are tetelestai, it is finished. That's the force of what Jesus is saying. Something important is happening here. God has completed his work. Now, most of us have been trained to think that the purpose of Jesus on the cross, dying on the cross, was to save me from my sins so that I can go to heaven. But that's an inadequate view of what happens. A result of the crucifixion is that my sins are forgiven. But there's more than that. Because the cross is at the center of God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. That's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray that. Because the cross looks like God's kingdom. When Jesus dies on the cross, it marks the end of one era and the beginning of another era. And Jesus' followers certainly see that as more. And we see this in the passage this morning. When they're mocking him in verse 28, so you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. The temple is where God meets with people. And Jesus had said he was going to destroy the temple, but then build it in three days. And what he was talking about was his own death and resurrection. And Jesus himself becomes the temple. And then if you drop down to verse 38, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's a, a physical demonstration of the fact that now access to God is open through Jesus. So what then does the cross tell us about God? And that's perhaps the best news of all. The incarnation, Jesus coming to live among us, finds its fullest expression in the cross. Without the cross, 
God doesn't fully embrace our humanity and all of its tragic ugliness and pain. Without the resurrection, he leaves us in our tragic ugliness and pain. It would have been really easy for the early Christians to tone down the cross, to kind of downplay it. In fact, we do that a lot and highlight the life-giving resurrection, the big deal, Easter Sunday. And in fact, a lot of the Gnostic Gospels do this. They airbrushed the cross out of the picture and they redefined the resurrection as a spiritual event and reduced Jesus to a teacher of odd pieces of wisdom. But that's not the way that it happens. Jesus goes to the lowest point possible because Jesus is redefining the nature of the kingdom with regard to radical self-giving and self-denial. In a lot of pagan religions, people have to pacify an angry deity, but that's not how it happens in Israel's scriptures. The biblical promise of redemption has to do with God himself acting on our behalf because of his unchanging, unshakable covenant love for his people. Because of all that happens in it, there's this enormous power in the cross. You don't have to be bound to your past. Your addictions don't have to have free reign over you. God has made a way for change. God's love knows no boundaries. There's nothing that you can do that is any worse than what God already experienced on the cross. God through the cross in the resurrection is creating a new reality where might doesn't make right, but where selfless giving breaks the power of evil. One of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner wrote, a six-pointed star, a crescent moon, a lotus. The symbols of other religions suggest beauty and light. The symbol of Christianity is an instrument of death. It suggests, at the very least, hope. So let me ask you three questions. Number one, what is the most challenging aspect of the crucifixion for you? Number two, what's the hope that you find in the crucifixion? And number three, what is an area of your life where you need to experience the power of the cross? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.